Uh, good morning. Uh, so if you're just now joining us for the first time, my name's Justin. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, and we are jumping into a new series. We're going to be exploring uh, the Gospel of Mark. Particularly, we're going to be exploring some of the highlights of the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark in your Bibles is one of your four basic accounts of who Jesus was. Uh, but it was the first one written. So we think it was written probably as early as seven years after Jesus. Uh, and it's your most stripped down kind of basic gospel. Uh, so my gospel, my favorite one, probably shouldn't surprise you guys, is John. Uh, because it's complicated and there's a lots of theology in it. And it was written way after Jesus had died. And so John had a lot of time to think about all the theological things that was happening uh, in the life of Jesus. Mark, on the other hand, is a simple gospel. It was sort of written right after Jesus. And so it has a lot of um, really kind of what I would call like that basic message of what it means to be a Christian, like how we process that, how we understand that. Uh, and sort of like if you were a Christian and, and, and listening to Jesus for the first time, what you probably would have heard uh, really kind of comes through in the gospel of Mark, which you would have kind of heard in its rawness and in its earliest form kind of flows through the gospel. Of Mark. And so this morning, um, we're going to be talking about particularly what it means to uh, actually be a Christian. Okay, so, so what I want to argue with this morning, with the text that we're in this morning, uh, that I think um, I would argue with you that your life task as a Christian, like your big goal as a Christian, if you will, like the, the driving of your Existence as a Christian, your life as a Christian, your purpose as a Christian, your meaning as a Christian is coming to terms with God's unconditional love for you. This is at its core the part, the, the thing that drives us as Christians. It is coming to terms with the unconditional, radically inclusive love that God has for you. Okay, so, so everything else in the Christian life, I want to argue this morning with what Jesus says. Everything else about what it means to be a Christian, uh, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to live a life of obedience to him. Everything else in the, the Christian life comes down to Am I able to come to terms with the fact that I am unconditionally loved by God? Okay, because, and, and, I, and I phrase it intentionally this way, can I come to terms with it? Because I believe this is the, like, at our core, the thing that we are most resistant to. It's not our sin issues. It's not our addiction issues. It's not our shame. It's not our fear. Like all of that springs out of what we, whether or not we can come to terms with the fact that we are unconditionally loved by God. All of those other things that we wrestle with, all those other things that we come across come out of whether or not our hearts can truly accept this. Okay, so, so A.W. A. Tozer is a theologian, he's a reformed theologian. Uh, he said, uh, I think the primary thing, uh, importance in a Christian's life is what they think of God. Like that defines who they are as people. I don't think that's untrue, um, but I want to say this. I think it's not actually what you think of God. I think it's what you think God thinks of you. 
Okay, and the reason I say that, and the nuance I want to make there, and I'm going to say this with nuance, so, so stay with me, uh, but, but um, what, what you think, like what you believe about God and what you think about God, that's important and that's true, and we want to work on having good theology, we want to work on understanding scripture, all of that, but ultimately, all of you are vastly wrong about what you think about God, and I am vastly wrong about what I think about God. If you think of the eternal attributes of God, his glory, his love, like there's going to be so much when you come to him someday, you're going to go, I wasn't even close. Like I, maybe I saw a little bit of it, but like there's so many parts about who God is, his nature and his character that we will continuously grow in, wrestle in uh, and, and try to understand and grow. But ultimately, I think when you come face to face with God, I actually think it's going to be more or less we're going to realize how wrong we were about so much. But I do think what will happen in that moment is we'll come to a space where we realize how much he loved us despite how wrong we were about him. Despite all the ways that we missed it, there will be this moment in which the unconditional love of God will meet us. And we'll see for the first time how much he pursued us, how much he longed for us. So, so the, the early Greek theologians uh, had a word that they would often use to describe God's love. It was the word eros. Uh, and in Greek, that actually often is used for sexual love or like passionate love, um, sort of like a longing. Okay, now, I'm not saying um, we think about God's love in, this, in a sexual way. That's not what I'm saying. But what they were trying to do was they were trying to find a word that would describe the way that God loves people. And the way that they tried to do that best was this longing. It's this, this deep desire within his heart to pursue, to be with, in communion, and in connection with us. It's this deep longing or this deep passion that God has. That's why they chose the word eros. Eros is because it had, there's passion which God pursues. And so as we spend most of our life uh, trying to wrestle with this idea that we are unconditionally loved, I will argue that it's whether or not we can actually come to terms with that, whether or not you can actually accept that, that will define spiritual health for you, that will create spiritual health for you, that will actually create freedom for you. Okay, so uh, this morning, uh, as I was thinking about that, like one of the things that I think is um, true about God's love is it's actually the most controversial thing in your Bible. Okay, it's, it's not all those verses on, on sexuality. Uh, it's not all of those verses on like, where do we get like, uh, where do we understand pre-reproductive rights out of all that? Like all of this, I think all of the hot button topics, all the hot button issues, all the arguments that we have actually come out of, am I unconditionally loved or is this person unconditionally loved? Like how much do they have to change about them? How much do I change about myself in order for them to be unconditionally, unreservedly, radically included with Within the love of God. This at its core, I believe, is the heart, like the heart behind every theologically controversial issue that we explore. Because we wrestle with actually accepting it for ourselves. And we wrestle with actually accepting it for others. 
And so Jesus will this morning in Mark, he will say, you want to come into the kingdom of God. You want, which for us, when we say kingdom of God, um, I want us to just for at least this morning for this purpose of this sermon, uh, kind of think of that, translate that as like spiritual health. When you want to come into the life that God has for you, how do you do that? What is the way, what's the access point? How do you access this? How do you think about this? At the end of the day, what matters most in the Christian life, Jesus is going to say, this is how you come into the kingdom of God. Uh, and it's going to be, um, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard this verse. Uh, you probably heard this story. There's actually even some Sunday school songs kind of centered around it. Uh, and it has to do with Jesus letting little children come to him. Uh, and it's sad because I think oftentimes we think of this, this whole episode here uh, as uh, something like an object lesson for the kids. But really what's happening here is Jesus is saying, no, 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 adults that are watching this, this is your access point. This is where you go for spiritual health. This is how you come into the invitation that I am bringing to you. It's more than just, we kind of hear this story, and I'll read it in just a second, but we kind of hear this story, uh, and a lot of times the, 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 like the lesson that we grab out of that is like, Jesus is okay with distractions, and kids are distracting. Like, let's make space for distraction in our life. I'm not saying that that's not untrue. Don't hear me say that, but there's something so much deeper that Jesus is saying here. Adults that are watching this, this is your way to access me. This is your path into my love. Can you accept that? So let me read it. We're only going to be in a few short verses this morning, uh, starting in Mark chapter 10. The words are going to be behind me on the screen. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13. People were bringing the little children to Jesus for him to come to his place, his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Let me pray for us this morning as we get started. Well, Father, would you be with us for these next few moments um, as we wrestle with what it actually entails to follow you, what it actually involves to be a part of your kingdom. Father, every single one of us are going to be resistant to this. This is why it's in here. Every single one of us are going to find ourselves resistant to the idea that we are unconditionally loved by a God who carries us into his kingdom. So for a few moments, Father, would you help us to lay down our defenses? Would you help us to set aside all the things that we think we need to bring in, all the things that you don't accept about us? Father, would you help us? We need you. We love you. Would you have mercy on us? Would you show us how to love you? We don't always do that well. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. 
Okay, so, so as I said, this whole scene here, I want to set this for a minute. Uh, Jesus says, let the little children come. Uh, so what happens here, uh, as we see at the very beginning, the people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. Okay, so that Greek word, that, that translation there is fine. You can say they were bringing them. Sometimes it makes it sound uh, like they were like walking them by their hands or kind of like guiding them to Jesus. But really, there's probably referring to infants. And that Greek word, you could translate that as they carried children. Okay, this is important. I'm going I'm to I'm say this because this is important to what Jesus is driving at uh, in this. But they carried these children uh, to Jesus. And so what we begin to see about Jesus in this, this whole thing here is there's this idea of them being carried to him. I'm still humming. I don't, it's like, I don't, there we go. Let's try that. Is that better? Sorry, y'all. Um, there's this idea that they are carried to Jesus. Uh, and what's happening in this text is we're starting to see some of the helplessness. These children are vulnerable. They're needy. They can't actually even make it to Jesus on their own. Someone's bringing them. Someone's carrying them. There's, like, there's this dependence that we see. And so when, Jesus, uh, when, they bring Jesus, uh, when they bring these children to Jesus, the disciples rebuke them. And when Jesus sees this, he becomes indignant. So that word indignant uh, is the same word that we see that the religious leaders come, become towards Jesus uh, on the eve of his crucifixion. They were indignant so much so towards him that they wanted to crucify him. There's something deep inside Jesus' heart that uh, violently aggressive, not violently is the wrong word, but like passionately and deeply opposes this idea that they won't let these children who are dependent and needy and simple come to him. And so one of the things that's helpful to understand uh, in this text also uh, is in the, in the context of the wider story of what's happening is Jesus has been arguing uh, and in conflict with the religious leaders now for, for quite some time. There, there are really three groups of, of, of religious leaders uh, and almost they're like political parties that had been uh, uh, arguing with Jesus, opposing Jesus. That was the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. And we're not going to go into the history of all three of these groups of people. Um, but really what, what all three of these groups of people were doing uh, was kind of arguing about what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God and sort of trying to get Jesus to take a certain angle. Each one of these groups, if you will, so to speak, like their agenda was we need to, to make Israel great again. Like how do we get power again? How do we control? Uh, how do we oust the Romans again? Like how do we um, preserve our cultural identity again? There was this um, sense of like what it does it mean to have power in the kingdom? What does it mean to be important in the kingdom? The disciples had just recently had an argument with each other among this. Hey, what does it mean to be important in the kingdom? And Jesus hears them arguing about this. And so in this context, all of these other people, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these Zealots, uh, all of them have been coming to Jesus constantly. They've been coming to him constantly, uh, bringing in their positions, kind of wanting to bring Jesus in on their angle. Right, and, the, and the Pharisees, and by the way, they represent, this isn't a, a knock on either political party. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots, they recommend, they were all over on the political spectrum. Some of them would be what we'd call more conservative. Others of them would have been more progressive, like the Sadducees. And both groups are trying to get Jesus uh, in on, hey, what does it mean for us to be great? 
And what's ironic is as all of these groups of people come to talk to Jesus uh, to present kind of their angle, the, the disciples are never indignant towards this. They're never in opposition towards this. Because these people are important, right? And so they're finding themselves kind of right in the middle of all these important discussions. So this is contrasted when then all of a sudden these little, these little children who are helpless and vulnerable, limited, simple, gullible, right? as the children are, I can convince my three-year-old that there's a dragon when we play make-believe. There's some real dependency that I can say all kinds of things and she buys it, which is kind of scary. Um, But there's this simplicity in the kids. There's this need, this vulnerability. And Jesus, uh, as, as they walk each of these or carry each of these children to Jesus, it's this group of people that the disciples become oppositional to. It's this group the disciples decide to say something about, say, this isn't worth Jesus' time. This isn't why he's here. This isn't important. This doesn't matter. This doesn't concern him. All of these other political groups and the zealots, they were actually more of a military group. They were violent. All of these other political groups had come to Jesus and they never said anything. They never shooed them away. They never said, stop bothering him. Stop with your questions. Stop with your angles. But with this group of children, the disciples say something. And this is what makes Jesus so indignant. And this is where Jesus stops and says, all of, all of you, all you conservatives, all you progressives, all of you mighty military type people, you're all missing, all you powerful people, you're all missing what's happening here. So when Jesus solves this, he says, he says to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Okay, so he just answers the question that we didn't read it, right? Because it would have been several chapters. Uh, you're welcome for that. But he's just answered the question that all these other groups of people and the disciples have been arguing with and wondering about and pushing for for the last couple of chapters is what does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? Okay, so I want to use that word kingdom of God kind of interchangeably with spiritual health. What does it mean to walk with God, to know God, to be with him? This week, right, um, you're here at church this morning, but Monday morning starts and you'll go to your meetings or class or have demands from your family. Your kids will want breakfast. As you go through your week, you're going to ask this question or at least want us to ask this question of what does it mean for me to be part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean for my spiritual health, for my intimacy with God in these types of moments? I want to take my kids to baseball practice. Right? Why spend time with my spouse? I do what my boss needs. I try to figure out how to pay my bills, run my company, get through this meeting. As I'm walking through all of these different situations, what does it mean for me to be a participant in the kingdom of God? What does it mean for me to have spiritual health, 
in this moment. This is what this text is telling us. Jesus says, you got to be carried. There's simplicity, there's vulnerability, and there's neediness. These children are contrasted with all these other groups of people that have come to Jesus. And what's ironic about these groups of kids, all right, is they have no angle. Think about this for a second, okay? Like, really, theologically, I want us to really think about this. These kids have no idea who Jesus is. Especially if they're being carried. They were probably infants or young, young children. And what we read is that when he takes the children into his arms, he blesses them. These kids are carried into the kingdom, carried into the presence of Jesus without him, without them knowing anything about who he is, or what he could do for them, what he could offer them, what kind of angle they might work. They were totally dependent on who brought them there. And when Jesus sees them, he takes them into his arms and he blesses them. He unconditionally accepts them and their neediness their limitedness and their vulnerability. And what we see in the text is when Jesus blesses them, we see a picture of what the unconditional love of God looks like, what it operates like. And Jesus tells them in verse 15, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. So it's very important that we see the words that Jesus picks. It's who receives the kingdom of God. Not who argues their way into it. Not who theologizes their way into it. I'm going to push a little bit this morning, but I think that the text, I think I'm staying faithful to the text here. Um, It's not even about uh, how much scripture you know. It's not about how religious you are. It's about how much you can receive it in neediness and independency. It's not even about how much theology you know. Okay, so, I, like, you guys, sometimes I sound anti-theology. I'm not. I wouldn't have a job if it weren't for theology, right? Like, um, I'm not saying let's have bad theology or be lazy in our theology, but I am saying this. Let's never mix up theology with intimacy with God. It's going to be very easy to mix those two things up. And as someone who's been to seminary, I can point to you entire classrooms full of people who know more theology than you and me and who are so far from the heart of God. Their relationship is cold. It's distant. Or it's entirely intellectual. It's this all what I know about God, not how I know him. And does our theology help us with that? Yeah, absolutely it does. Absolutely it helps form some kind of picture of of maybe what we can expect from God, see God, know about God. But at its core, here Jesus is saying, you want to receive the kingdom of God. You're going to be like one of these kids, humble, needy, dependent. And you know, one of the things about kids, uh, maybe just with my own kid, is kids are never ashamed of their own neediness. You realize that? My daughter begs for ice cream every morning. She's never like, oh, that was kind of an unreasonable ask. I'm sorry, Dad. Like, 
there's this unashamed part of them that she just knows. Like she woke up yesterday, we had a bunch of plans, and she woke up yesterday and she's like, I want to go, I want to go swim in a creek. And you're like, all right, that's what we're doing tomorrow. We're, that's what we're doing today. We had all of these other things we needed to do. And she's like, actually, I want to go swimming in a creek today. There's this unashamed part of like her, of what she, and she knows like she can't do that unless I drive her to one and then get in the creek with her, right? There's this unashamed, like, I, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I, I want to do today with you, Dad. And in her limitedness, and in her vulnerability, and in her need, she's able to just come and say, this is what I want. I need you for this. So when I started off this morning, I started off by saying, there is, I think, at its core, this is the heart of the Christian walk, entering into the kingdom of God. It's the thing that we're most resistant to. Can I accept how unconditionally loved and completely vulnerable and needy I am for God? Can I accept, can I really accept, even in the midst of all the things I spend a great deal of time trying to hide from other people, all the ways that I have addictions and things going on in my life that I just don't seem to ever overcome, all the ways that I still struggle with anger, fear, guilt, pride, and all the ways that I've destroyed things or destroyed relationships or been self-destructive, and all the ways that I have either done damage or been damaged or continue to damage myself, in all of this, can I accept that none of that is relevant to the way that God loves me? And when I say relevant, meaning it doesn't affect what he offers you, what he gives you, and what he delights in giving you. This is why I think the word eros is an, an appropriate word. This desire and this longing. And I'm absolutely convinced uh, that most of us as Christians, we are very deeply at our core uncomfortable with this idea. We resist it. This idea that I can offer nothing and it means I am loved. This idea that I am not even close to per- not even like sometimes we're like, well, I'm not perfect. I know everybody makes mistakes, but like I want to talk like that kind of shame that goes, you know what? Like I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be this parent. I don't deserve my spouse. I don't deserve like that part of us that sometimes really deeply wrestles with a sense of inadequacy. wrestles with a sense of failure or shame guilt and those moments can I really deeply somewhere inside of my heart know God is longing for me and pursuing me can I receive the kingdom in this way it's not complicated It's not, but it is almost impossible. This is why Jesus refers to it as a narrow road. And all of these other groups pushing their agendas. I'm not saying political agendas are wrong. Everybody's got political angles. We're 
saying like don't engage in politics, politics. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is Jesus is just contrasting all of these kids with all of these other adults with angles and hopes to achieve greatness. And each, each of these groups, by the way, defined greatness very differently in the same way that every single person in this room would define greatness differently. Some of you would define it as um, having perfect children or perfect families. Some of you would define it as career, success, or engagement. Like some of us define it as wealth. Some of us define it as reputation. All of us have a different definition of greatness. That's not what the, your definition actually um, in the end is, is relatively irrelevant. What, is, what matters here is can I see what Jesus is saying is great? As we wrestle with that, as our hearts get insecure and afraid about that, we'll try to compensate for it or overcompensate for it. Right? This is where we spend a great deal amount of our life and our energy and our time trying to overcompensate for the fact that we really truly can't actually be unconditionally loved. That God, all God ever wanted for us was to come to him in neediness, to be carried uh, into his presence. So we'll spend all kinds of time and in all kinds of ways compensating for that in our life. Because of how uncomfortable we are with this. Right? And if you're feeling uncomfortable or you're feeling a need to, uh, to argue, say, well, what about this or what about Right? What about righteousness? What about holiness? What about uh, all these other things that we're supposed to emulate or worship about God? Here's what I would say just briefly and quickly about that. One, um, often when we get to this space, the more we feel argumentative, the more that we might feel resistant, might be more of a sign that we are actually deeply just uncomfortable uh, with this idea that we've been unconditionally loved by God. But two, I want to say this, is that actually your New Testament writers uh, begin to paint this picture that God's holiness is his unconditional love. God's righteousness is his unconditional love. Even God's justice, God's uh, greatness, God's riches. Like when we say, like, God, you are, what, like you are rich, what are we actually saying? Your bank account's bigger than mine? What, what we're saying, what John is saying when, when we use some of this term of like God's vastness and his richness uh, and his power and his glory, what he's saying is this, this is a God who unconditionally loves in a way that never runs out, never actually takes advantage of, never lets down and never lets go. And this is God's glory. Jesus says, you want to define greatness here. Start thinking about what it means to be carried in dependency and in need. And then to be unashamed of that need. As we close this morning, I just want to leave us with a little bit of a thought experiment. Like, what would it look like for you to let go of that shame that you even have needs? What kind of freedom could you find? knowing that God delights in your needs, that he delights in who you are. He's not looking for you to prove anything to him. What kind of freedom could you find? As these little ones who are blessed by Jesus, radically blessed by Jesus, 
lays his hands on them, comforts them, holds them. They actually have no real clue. They don't have any clue what he's teaching, what his power is. This is why I said earlier, when many of us meet God one day, there's going to be so much about him we realized that got wrong, didn't even see, wasn't even aware of, was completely clueless to. And I think what will be amazing in that moment, what will be beautiful in that moment, what will be soul-defining, what will be deeply transformative for us in that moment, and hopefully every moment of our spiritual life leading up to this, is realizing how unconditionally loved and accepted we were, even in the midst of all the ways that we were wrong. Even in the midst of all the ways that we were clueless. In the midst of all the ways we didn't know. We knew that God in his profound love for us sought us out with deep desire and carried us into his presence. This is the hallmark of the Christian life. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to be a part of the kingdom. To be a good church that in our vulnerability pursues this. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll finish for today. Well, Father, we love you. Um, but we don't always love you well. We need help. So Father, would you be with us? Would you care for us? Father, would you help us to be unashamed of our need, unashamed of our dependency on you? Jesus, would you help us to be unashamed of even all the ways that we don't honor you or know you? And we want to honor you, Jesus. It's not that we want to stop ever trying. That's not it. But so many of us have conflated honoring you with being accepted by you, and they're two separate things. So, Father, would you help us as we start the Gospel of Mark, see that we are brought in like little children, carried like little children into your presence. Would you help us in total vulnerability, in total need, in total acceptance by you, surrender to you, to accept our vulnerability in you, to accept our need for you. Help us not to be ashamed of that. Help us not to be fearful of that to live in total exposure to you and know that we're still loved. Would you help us, those of us who compensate because we can't accept this or overcompensate, find some rest, some healing? We need you, Father. We love you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.